Thank you, snowboarding. Thank you, snowboarding. Hey friends, it's Thank You Snowboarding, the podcast that is diving into UK snowboard culture. Where it's from to where it's at. My name is Chris Cracknell. I am doing this in association with the Snowboard Asylum and the Reason magazine. Uh, both of which are looking after snowboarders in very fine fashion. So if you need some snowboarding kit, go check them out. And if you need something to read, go check out the Reason magazine. So this week I'm back home after uh, what can only be described as a brilliant week at the Larks Open last week. Got to send a massive shout out to the Reason Mag for having me with them over there, uh, to Astrid and all the crew as part of the Lax Open. Shout out to episode seven's Tom Kingsnorth for making me laugh all week. Uh, bumped into episode one's Ed Lee, but he was working really, really hard. Shout out to him and Tim Warwood. Basically the two hardest working people there all week, as well as Henry Jackson, who was commentating live. Um, those guys really put in the hours. I'm surprised if they can actually speak or fill their throats now because uh, they did a great job of translating what was going on on the mountain to those people viewing either on the mountain or on the live stream. So yeah, I'm going to have a bit more of a deep dive into the Larks Open at the end of this episode. But firstly, we're going to get into somebody who I didn't know she was going to be there. And it was a surprise when somebody mentioned her name and said that she was there. And then I bumped into her first thing the next morning. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about Leslie McKenna, who... For those listeners who don't know who she is, she used to be, she came from a skiing background, grew up in Aviemore, and sort of quickly became to dominate UK competition scene. Her and Melanie Leando went on to do a lot of uh, international contests. Um, I think Leslie herself did three Olympics. Um, some of that has already been gone into in our chat on episode two with Melanie Leando, so you can always go and check that out. But... Leslie's kind of carried on her career in snowboarding, really. She does, I think she does splitboarding workshops up in Aviemore. Uh, she's just released a mood little short film with Patagonia called Thrawn. Um, she is also part of the sort of Team GB kind of development of all the coaching and training. I think it's fair to say that she's had a massive influence in our young athletes and them doing really, really well. So, of course, it made sense to speak to Leslie. She has, in one way or another, devoted her life to snowboarding, and snowboarding's given her so much. So, of course, uh, it seemed like a good person to get on. And um, I've known Leslie for quite a long time, and I find her very easy company. She's clever, insightful, interested in stuff. And uh, we kick off the conversation with her and the PhD, which within a few minutes of seeing her, she was telling me about, which is fascinating. And um, I've had a few thoughts since then, which I fired over last night. So I'm kind of hoping that some even more interesting stuff might come out of her PhD. But anyway, I wouldn't like to claim that I'm doing anything for it other than I had an idea, because that is literally all it was. Anyway, anyway, um, I really enjoyed this conversation with her. We did it after riding one day um, in the apartment at Lazare in uh, Lux and yeah it was really cool and then we went shortly after this to a 
chat about women in snowboarding with Donna Carpenter, which was fascinating, really. And uh, Leslie certainly had some insights into that as well. So anyway, here we go, Leslie McKenna. First things first, tell me about your PhD. PhD. Whoever thought, I never thought I'd ever do a PhD. Why um, are you doing a PhD? Good question. Are you um, someone who just likes to do stuff, always be busy? You strike me as that kind of person. Um, I kind of fall into things, to be honest. Like for somebody who, like most of my colleagues who work in a high performance sport are, would define themselves as goal orientated. Right. And are really surprised when, when I say, oh, I just, you know, get interested in something and then an opportunity comes up and a door opens and I think that looks wicked fun or that's super interesting. I'm going to like have a look some more or, you know, take up the offer, take up the opportunity and it leads somewhere else and it leads somewhere else. Yeah. And, you know, years later, I've gone down this path without really much planning. But within that, once I see an opportunity or get interested in something, then I will set my mind to doing it. Yeah. So there, there's a bit of a mix there. So the PhD is one of those themes, um, kind of like how snowboarding was. And I got interested in how experiences in action sports specifically shape the way that you look at the world and right. what that means for what you do at an individual level, but also how the culture develops and how communities work and the balance between um, nature and nurture, I guess, a little bit. Yep. But specifically in the, the kind of high-performance action sports, if you can even call that a thing. I mean, that sounds like it's a, an oxymoron, right? But having spent my life, you know, in snowboarding or my, my adult life in snowboarding at the high level... Um, and now as a job, I'm a coach developer, so I support coaches in other sports. And that's definitely working in the what would be called the high-performance sports system. Yeah. And, you know, there's something really special about action sports. There's something really unique about the experiences that people have and the communities we have and the way people support one another and how stoked everybody is on, you know, what's going on that I don't always see in other sports so I wanted to understand more about that that's what the PhD is about yeah I've often wondered if the the, the high level of snowboarding whether it is just sort of morphing into what other sports look like at that level do you know what I mean because it um, used to be like you know a party a bit like a party circuit and it was big events and yeah. snowboarding culture was thick in it whereas I was wondering and coming here it's quite interesting to see how the culture still is the culture. Yeah. So I think there's the you can look at the culture and the lifestyle from the outside in, and you can look at it from the perspective of, um, you know, the riders and the coaches who are doing the events and, and look out, or, you know, a bit of both. And, you know, I think from the outside in, it would definitely look like um, snowboarding or, um, you know, I'm also talking to skateboarders and surfers, um, that... It's morphing, as you say, into to what it looks like in more traditional sports like track and field or swimming or gymnastics. But actually, it's very, very different. Is it still? It's very different. The way people work, the, the things that people value and talk about, their reasons for doing what they do are quite 
and they, you know, when you ask people, they're they're different. Yeah. It's unique, and the risk, the risk that, especially in, in snowboarding, that's there all the time, and having to manage that risk, take on things, help each other out. I think that lends itself to unique experiences. However, there are structures, if you like, or funding that's come in, an organisation that starts to look a lot more like other high-performance sports. So. Yeah. Understanding more about how those things, you know, the the organisations and rules and structures impact on the cultures and experiences, something that we as action sports communities need to know more about because we don't want to lose what's special about our no. sports, right? Does snowboarding give to other disciplines, like in the way that you've... Is it fair to say, like, you sort of create the whole coaching sort of scheme around like the high performance UK snowboarders? So um, oh, it definitely wasn't just me, no. uh, but I guess I was in the thick of it, if you yeah. like. Um, so although it was still, it was there from the beginning, you know, um, really, you, you know, you talk to Becky Malthouse and, you know, people like Becky and Neil, they, they're good examples. So even way back, you know, when it was, snowboarding was, the new kid on the block as as far as sports went and you know it was really connected to the the music scene things like mtv snowball when yeah, mtv was about yeah. music and yeah, yeah. um, and bex and neil came in and i imagine you know i'm sure you can get to talk to them somewhere about that but they were um quite focused you know they trained they were trying to get better they were taking on um snowboarding as as the, the riders here do today, yeah. whilst the outside culture, you know, from the outside in, was very much a, about the vibrancy and the music scene and the fashion and and the creativity is a big theme, obviously, in yeah. snowboarding. And we just have a more um, evolved um, picture of, of exactly the same thing now. So people who are doing it are still trying to do the best that they can do or in yeah. snowboarding, whether they're um, riding slopestyle or pipe or big air, they're, they're still practicing and trying to, you know, learn new tricks and being inspired by other people. Uh, I had a little chat to, to a few of the, the riders today and, you know, they are still having fun, but still pushing their limits, still getting stoked on helping their their friend, even if their friend's a competitor from a different country, to push their limits. And, um, you know, that's all still there. I just, um, so as far as did I, I, I took my experiences from the inside out, yeah. but my um, understanding of the marketing side and, you know, the work that, that myself and Melanie did, we learned so much. I know you've yeah, had a great yeah, yeah, yeah. chat with Melanie. Hi, Mel. Um, the, the stuff that we learned having to do ourselves about yeah. marketing and about coaching and about how it all works really helped me to, when I was um, then in a, a program management position working with head coaches, to go, okay, what's important? What's important from the inside out and what's important from the outside in yeah. and try and get that blend. And that's really the role I played in, in setting up the coaching side. So I guess from a lot of your experience, it gave you a lot of, because you were saying how sort of high level performance, like high level athletes, everything's done for them now. So they have less sort of confidence and sort of ability to sort of go out and push themselves yeah. into other things or, mm -hmm. you know, they're sort of quite insulated in a way in what they're doing. I think there is a danger and, and 
quite a few of the coaches that I've spoken to as part of the PhD have mentioned this, that um, if you if you don't support the riders to to solve the problems that come along in life in general, you know, how yeah. do you get yourself from A to B? What do you do if you're stranded on the trains late and this is you know things yeah, that happen yeah, yeah, when yeah, you're yeah. getting yourself around and if you have somebody sorting all of those things out for you obviously I'm not talking about kids here I'm talking about young adults and um, then you never learn to do it yourself you never abandon a you know a child or don't, that's not what I'm saying um but to support people to be able to take on life's challenges yeah. and coach in a way that that helps them to understand how they learn themselves and to really you know, it sounds cheesy, but to empower them um, and to help them have accountability to themselves apart from anything else, but also yeah. to those around them and appreciation and a, a respect for those they're competing against and working with. Um, I think that's important. And there's a danger if everything's too structured and too organised that that goes. Um, yeah, because, I mean, you guys just DIY'd the whole thing, didn't you, essentially? Yeah, we we did, and you know, would I I recommend that as an approach? I mean, I'm do I had an amazing time. I learned so many amazing, important things, and I wouldn't change that for the world. So maybe I shouldn't be endorsing that approach. However, the there is some lessons in there that maybe you you can support other people to to learn, um, maybe in not such a harsh way or a bit quicker. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, we, yeah, you yeah know. for sure. <laughs> Don't have to make all the mistakes yourself, exactly, right? You can learn from others. Exactly. All right, cool. Let's go back in time then. How did you find snowboarding? Like, what did it look like when you first discovered it? Um, Tony Brown flying down the Coy Cast out of control, whooping and hollering, I guess. But, you know, Tony, there's a person there's you a should person. definitely yeah, talk he's to. he's on the list. So Tony was a good friend of my older cousins. I obviously was really lucky to grow up in Aviemore. Yeah. And both my parents had connections to Cairngorm Mountain. And my dad, first of all, was a ski patroller and then drove the cats. Yeah. And my mum was a PE teacher, but also ski instructed a little bit. So as part of the local ski club, I got loads of support. You know, I got really cheap, sometimes free lift passes. The local shops supported the kids in the club. Um, the, real, the local community really mucked in so that all the local kids could get up the mountain. And it's still like that in Cairngorm. Exactly. You know, it's a really special place. So you have a real melting pot of, of people being able to learn to ski when they're a kid. So I was just part of that local group of kids. How did you transition from skiing? From to like, snowboarding. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the, by the late 80s, um, my older cousins who very much were part of Tony Brown's crew. I mean, it was about a small place. Um, you know, snowboarding was visible and I got to, you know, chat to, to Tony especially um, just because we were all part of the same community. And, and he had um, the Snowboard Academy he had that the, turned the, into, sort of morphed into the Snowboard Asylum over Exactly, time, exactly that. And I first tried snowboarding, I must have been about 12, and me and my older cousin Alan Baxter borrowed a couple of snowboards, hard boots on our salmon ski boots. We, I think it must have been too windy for a Cairngorm Ski Club to run or something. So it was probably horrendous. <laughs> it's probably like 70 mile an hour crosswinds. And we took these snowboards up with Corrie Cass on the sheet ice and, and gave it a shot and it was awful. And we, we both were like battered and bruised. We tumbled our way down the hill. 
But we had a great time, and we were like, oh, yeah, that, that was really difficult. Do you remember so what boards might they might They were some burnt airs, probably. I don't whatever. This was 1988, 89, sometime about then. You have to ask Tony. He might remember. Okay. Um, and from that point on, I had full respect for anybody that was snowboarding because it, well, I thought it was quite difficult. You know, you can just jump on Did you and not do just it. sort of think, hang on, no, that's not giving me the same things I get from skis, so I'm going to jack it? Oh, we just loved, you know, it's we loved skiing. We loved anything up that mountain. Yeah. It, you know, by going up that mountain, if you were a kid from Aviemore on the in whatever club you were in, it was like paradise because you got to a whole playground to go and razz about on. And the coaches were all, you know, looking back, it was wasn't loose to the point of dangerous, but it, there was a lot of freedom. You got to learn, you know, you got to make a lot of mistakes and you got lost, but you didn't really get lost. Somebody always found you again. You let, it was a great upbringing, you know, you yeah. learn um, well. And um, I was even more lucky because at the time I was allowed to stay late with my dad when he was pisting and he'd drive up the white lady and I'd get out at the top and he'd piste down with the head big um, spotlight on and I'd ski down in front. So I got to go cat skiing as That's well. That's rapid. You got to ride <laughs> yeah. in the cat. I've been in a cat once and I loved it. I was like, these oh, things was, are incredible. It was awesome. Um, so by the time I really went snowboarding, um, I guess more often, I was well into my ski career because shortly, you know, I got on the Scottish ski team and I trained, raced gates. And then, and all the time, Tony was like, you should go snowboarding, you should go snowboarding, whenever, whenever I saw him. Thanks, Tony. Um, and then it would have been about 94, 95, and actually Becky gave me a snowboard, one no of way. our nitros with the Sega on it. Yeah, yeah. I might even still have it in the shed, in my mum's shed <sighs> somewhere. And all the board-wise guys were so supportive and like, you should you know come snowboarding more you'd love it and yeah. at that time I was on the British ski team and there was a lot of politics involved in alpine skiing and not much money and it was really difficult to try and see my way through that because you know, my family didn't have the kind of money that I would have needed to have to continue yeah. skiing but I love you know I love being in the mountains and uh, I didn't really want to not be in the mountains and then it was a, a series of it's kind of sad, like tragedy happened. That one of the girls that was on the ski team with me got killed in a mm. downhill skiing accident. This was in 1996, January 96. And we had to all come home, obviously, for her funeral. And it just happened that 1996 was a bumper snow year. So I came back to Aviemore and I was at home for a couple of weeks and I was like three years into being on the ski team and it was getting quite serious. I was totally broke. I'd been working about four jobs all summer to get enough money to ski. And then one of my friends got killed and I was at home. And it's kind of, you know, that's difficult to process in your late teens. And, yeah, totally. Um, Becky and I think Neil was there as well. Cy Smith, Justin Westcott, um, Gus, they were like looking after me. Like, forget skiing. Just come snowboarding for a few weeks. Yeah. Just clear your head. Come and have fun. Um, it was literally powder, if anyone remembers 96 in Cairngorm, for a good few weeks. So I went and razzed about Cairngorm and tumbled my way down all sorts of places I probably had no business being. 
Um, now I'm like, oh my God, how did I we not get avalanched or something? Um, and by the end of that few weeks, it was actually Justin Westcott that made me a bet and he, he or a challenge. He said if he could get the same level of support for snowboarding that I had for skiing. So I had some ski sponsors, you know, equipment mostly and a bit of expenses. Would I jump ship? And I never thought about that. Oh, you know, I was like, yeah, oh. that's crazy. Okay. And Justin and the Boardwise crew, Brian, somehow managed to talk the Burton importers at the time. Simon Richardson. Simon Richardson. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Yeah. Um, that, that would be a good idea to talk Burton Europe into letting me come and train with the race team. No way. Which is just so ridiculous. But the, the attitude, that can-do attitude, was what got me hooked. It was, an, yeah. it was an opportunity. A door opened. Yeah. And one of my really good friends and ski coach at the time, John Clark, said to me, you know, you're not... I went back out to one ski race to the Open Cup finals and he said to me, I'm not letting you get in the bus back home. You need to go snowboarding. You're not, I'm not giving you a lift back home from the Alps. And so I went to Marybelle and I had the opportunity. Boardwise guys were like, come and sleep on our floor over here. It'll be great fun. <laughs> and I went to Marybelle. I met Melanie. I had a great time. Loved snowboarding. Everyone was so supportive. Burton gave me some gear and then said, why don't you come to the Burton camp in a few weeks in Carnotel? And I literally never looked back. Then you clear up at that. Oh, no, no, definitely. I probably the... cleared up tumbling down things. I literally, like, the only thing I could do at that point was rail from edge to edge really, really quickly because <laughs> I knew how to do that from skis and I wasn't scared. So as long as I was carving, I was totally fine. If it involved trying to speed check at all in any way, it turned into absolute disaster or I accidentally rodeo flipped out of a rut or a bump. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time having big crashes. It was a steep learning curve for yeah. me. I got snow blindness at that <laughs> chance. I got I hitched over from Les Arc where I was doing a season, turned up, rode the half pipe, got snow blindness, spent two days in a dark room, then went oh, home again. No. <laughs> I don't have fond memories of that British Champs, to be fair. I think I might have done quite well on the border cross. I can't, I, like it wasn't, the nice thing as well, it wasn't about winning or beating people. It was about let's take this on together yeah. right from the start. So yeah, there yeah. was something different about the culture straight from the start. Um, and what happened? Because you, you, did, you did a season living with all the White Lines crew in Maribel. Is that right? Yeah. So before I did that, me and Melanie had a tiny little cupboard, almost slightly bigger than a cupboard, that we lived in in Saint-Foy together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when we really tried to take on the World Cup tour. We should write a book about that. It's like looking back and like, we did what? And we, we coached each other. So Melanie was really experienced as a coach and a very good coach. And I had done quite a lot of coaching as well. I um, had been coaching some kids to make money in order to ski. So we worked out. We were really strategic as well as having fun. We're like, right, OK, we need to do this and we need to do this. And we went up every day and we'd practice and, you know, we'd set courses and we'd both ride the courses and then we'd go to the pipe and I'd try and help Melanie do the pipe. And then i join in a little bit and she'd join in the, the race gates. So we, we did all of that ourselves and organised the trips that we went to, to events and, you know, persuaded people to put in enough money for our travel expenses yeah. and then turned up, got to know somebody and said, I happen to have a, a sofa bed that we could sleep on for a week, do you? 
<laughs> Thank you to everyone who put us up and put up with us <laughs> in those years. If it hadn't have been for the kindness and, and you know, like yeah. the openness of everybody involved, that we would never have been able to do what we did. Yeah. So that was the first season. Second season, I lived with the White Lines crew in Marybell, and Melanie lived in Val d'Isere, so we combined forces and, and um, travelled from there. And then we went back to Borg. We got a house again in Borg Saint Maurice after that. So yeah, I slept on your floor once, one yeah, summer. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And, and it was good to be in Borg because teen was still running all year round. And yeah, 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 with half we, pipes. And yeah, you could do it fairly cheaply. You know, we didn't still didn't have a huge amount of money. So we made it work. We worked when we could and we hustled and we were tried, tried to be professional on terms of we realised there was interest from brands to sponsor snowboarding so we had to work out well you have to be accountable for that money you have to you know they're not going to give you money for free yeah. there's no free money so we had to work out what it would we'd have to do in order to get the money and um i think that was a good mixture you know we bet we definitely brought different skill sets and different ways of doing things collaborated and and made it work lots of learning there too yeah, for sure. What was it like? You're the first Olympian I've spoken to. What's that like, having yeah. to get your shit together to get to the Olympics, like just to sort of qualify and to get there? And then once you're actually there, deal with being there and yeah. performing. I mean, even just to get there and to work out the strategy to get up in the quota spots is a full-on mission. Like it's, you have to be really tactical as well as good enough to do it. So before Salt Lake... There were only 20 spots for women's half pipe, so you had to be in the top 20 in the world. But to be in the top 20 of the, in the world, you really needed two top five results. Right. And we'd worked that out. You know, we knew how difficult it was going to be. And we'd both had top five results at, at that point, so we were like, this is a long shot, but it's possible. And unfortunately, Melanie had a really bad head injury. Yeah. Like yeah, about, she mentioned that. I yeah. didn't know about that. So... About, or the, at the Brits, the Brit Games before the qualification period for Olympics. So that head injury put Melanie out of the run-ins, unfortunately. Mm. And you know, that's really, looking back, that's really sad on so many levels because um, it would have been far more fun if we'd both been able to go. Um, it was a very lonely place to be at the Olympics um, as the first British person with no teammates. Yeah. And... I hadn't really thought about what kind of spotlight is on you at Olympics. Yeah, it's sure. been such a mission to get, you know, somehow managed to get there, got the quota spot, turned up at the Olympics. And I'd been starting to ride quite well by that point. I'd quit Alpine. I got bored going round gates. At one point I did everything. I couldn't get enough. I was like racing and then I'd jump into the board across and do that. And then I'd go on the pipe. I have no idea how I had the energy to do that. It was absolutely <laughs> crazy. The first two seasons on this is World Cup tour. Um, I remember in a World Cup in Whistler, I was riding the pipe practice and I tr race trained with a French team. And one of the team who hadn't qualified for the next round of the GS came whizzing up going, you're in the finals, you need to go. And I was like, oh my God. So I had to quickly put on my race stuff. I didn't have time to put my cat suit back on and go do the, the finals <laughs> in my half pipe gear. So um, anyway... By the time I got to the Olympics, that I'd competed in a Grand Prix. This was in 2002. And just in the December of 2001, 
I'd done really well in, in one of the Grand Prix at Mammoth. I think I was third. I managed to wing a McTwist to frontside five. So that was the level at the time. Could do a Mickey. Can you, can you still do a Mickey? I asked my brother that on his one. If it's and really he soft, he could. if it's quite, yeah, just, yeah, I reckon I could wing it. I wouldn't try unless it's really soft in case it went wrong. Um, anyway, um, the Canadian TV lot tipped me as an outside chance for a medal. And, and from then on, I just froze. I hadn't processed any of that. You know, I was used to being the complete outsider, um, you know, just managing to get there somehow and find a floor to sleep on and, yeah. and doing my best. To all of a sudden there was this other narrative about winning and how are you going to win? And I thought, what? I just want to go as big as I can. And like, well, this is awesome. So um, that was difficult. And I'd also had to hurt my shoulder a few weeks before and literally couldn't lift my arm up until about the week before Olympics. So I was a bit like rabbit in the headlights by the time that Olympics came round, unfortunately. But it was an awesome experience. Right. Snowboarding really came of age during that event. And you could see that the pipe was perfect. We turned up and we were all looking at each other going, Oh my God, we've never seen anything like no, this. No, because the perfect pipes weren't that common, were no, they? No, they were like, really not common. Not many people knew how to build I them. I think that's the first perfect pipe I'd ever seen. Right. And everyone else too. Yeah. And, you know, I can re- remember talking to, you know, the people at the time, like Tre- people like Trevor Andrews or Hecky Sorsa or Shirsty and Stina, um, going, this is amazing. This is like perfect. So everyone was amped and just, you know, throwing it, sending it as much as they could. So being there for the riding was brilliant. The crowd were brilliant. But I realised that, you know, there was a mainstream sports media and a mainstream, you know, the British Olympic Association at the time were quite old-fashioned. They definitely didn't understand snowboarding. No. And I was having to mediate the whole time, and that was really difficult so that became a theme throughout my professional career like the bridge between what really happens and why people do action sports and the awesomeness of of it when it all comes together and the conditions are perfect and people are bouncing off of one another and you see magic happening yeah and then the how do you plan winning that's dry and ordered and linear and there's no room for magic (laughs) No. So, and that's know, what the public watching there. at home want. They want to see someone get a medal, right? Yeah, I don't know if they do. I think they pick up also on that showmanship and the magic and the people inspiring one another. And, you know, the um, snowboarding at the last Olympics had the highest viewing figures. And, um, you know, of course, it's competitive. But if you're not, you don't enter a competition if you don't like to take other people on and do your best. Yeah, yeah. And, all of them, you know, for my PhD, I'm asking those questions. And, of course, everybody who's at a World Cup, if they're at the level, is up for trying to win the competition or at least do their best tricks. But it's about more than that. It's not only about that. Do you think the mainstream understand that? I remember Claire Balding being quite dismissive of snowboarding when they first showed it, whatever Olympics it was. She was a bit like, oh, and here's this thing, snowboarding, and it's just yeah. some people falling over. Just when thinking, you prick, you don't understand this at all. And then watching um, that um, sports personality year, which isn't a program I would particularly watch, but I heard that Mia won it. So then, or like the young yeah. sports personality. So I decided to watch it 
and her walking up there in a pair of vans, walking past Claire Balding. Yeah. I just remember thinking, fuck you, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, is it changing? I, I'd like to think it is. I'd like to think that um, there's more room for understanding of different approaches to, to why things matter, and especially from the sporting side. You know, I often throw this question into high-performance sports spaces. What's the value and relevance of high-performance in sport? today why does it matter yeah because on one hand it's extremely frivolous mm. but it's very you know it's a special thing as well and if you watch people like Valentino Giselli here doing his magic in the halfpipe mode doing stuff that nobody else has ever done before ever and how did he get there how's that possible how what elements have come together to support this amazing person to reach that potential and yeah, the, the performance is special, but everything that goes into it and, and makes it possible is really valuable and can be transferred into other parts of life. That's why it's yeah. valuable. So I was just wondering about, obviously talking about high performance, but what is it that the public see that makes them want to go snowboarding? Is it, is it the high level, you know, people riding mm. the pipe at the top level, which to be honest is insane, but unattainable it's, it's kind of not it's not like <laughs> back in the 90s where it's like yeah maybe i you know yeah. i could learn to do a six foot method do you know what i mean yeah and probably lots of people could yeah. whereas now it's like you know i look mm. to that pipe when i look at that pipe up there and just think I'm, i don't even want to go anywhere near it do you know what i mean i wouldn't even want to cruise up and down it it's, it's terrifying gnarly, isn't it yeah so i i think there's a few things i think the real general public who don't do snow sports or know nothing about it are tuning into the performative side it's a bit like a circus act it, yeah. it looks crazy and certainly i think border cross gets a lot of views as well there's excitement right. it's vibrant i think the more freestyle events um it's a show but i guess they pick up on the vibe and the interactions between the athletes and you know, i think one of the key moments from the Beijing Olympics was when Zoe from, you know, the New Zealand female slopestyle rider, when she won with her last run in the slopestyle, all the other women came out and were hugging her yeah. and were like genuinely stoked. And, you know, that's a really special thing and yeah. not something you see in many other sports. Yeah, I'm glad. I would say that maybe it does influence other sports in that way because mm. I think people are acting more like that. Yeah. in other sports do you know what I mean yeah yeah and it, I think it's because sort of snowboarding and skating of it's yeah. more of a community everyone yeah. wants snowboarding to do well as well as as themselves as themselves yeah. it's almost as important yeah okay I've lost the thread so um let's get away from competition yeah and back to you because uh, the new, that thing that you've just made with Patagonia. Thrawn film. Thrawn. Yeah. Um, my kids were disappointed because there's a Thrawn in Star Wars. I know. And I was a talking about them. And, and uh, they were like, I was like, you should watch this. The and they're like, that's not Thrawn. He's the blue guy in Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, your life, you've devoted your life now to snowboarding, haven't you? And you live it. You do live the life. 
I do. I didn't purposely devote my life to snowboarding. In my head, I'm still taking a year out. I guess I've gone back to uni now. I'm not taking a year out. You know, when I went, when I left school at, after my hires. What did you? What, hires, what, what, did, what did you have any idea what you wanted? To, like, did you have a like a? This is what I might do. No, because I was lucky. I was fairly good at passing exams, so I managed to get five hires, and they were all A's. And the teachers were like, "You need to do a doctor or a lawyer." And I'm like, oh, God. So I applied for five different things at five different universities. That's yeah. how much I knew what I wanted to do. And I think I got three different offers and deferred all of them, didn't accept any, and went skiing. And lucky enough, my first season skiing, I was in Jackson Hole living with Ski Patrol because no my, my parents had friends that used to, actually the guy was a Scottish guy, Callum Mackay, legend, um, that was on the ski patrol in Jackson and he kindly looked after me. Um, I was part of his family for the season um, and skied for the Jackson Hole Ski Club, who were no awesome. Way. Big shout out to Jackson Hole Ski Patrol and Jackson Hole Ski Club. Um, and so I never went back. For I, I deferred, I think, a few times and then the universities said... You're taking the mick. You can't defer again. Come back when yeah. you actually know what you want to do. Um, and followed those threads. Just doors opened. I ended up snowboarding. And I went back to study um, when I was a Roxy team manager. And I was coaching and managing um, riding a bit at the same time. And I went yeah. back to do a master's in performance coaching. And that's when I was talking to Hamish McKnight and Pat Sharples a lot about the coaching structure in the UK. Okay. You also um, just mentioned the Roxy team manager thing. You also made some videos, didn't you? Yes. So Thron um, uh, kind of started as a mini project. You asked about Thron. And it was going to be just a few minutes long and a, a bit of a how do you connect into the land and Cairngorm and what's the culture like, what's the community like. And we talked about these themes and they've been developing over a few years whenever we went splitboarding, especially over COVID, we did a lot of splitboarding. Yeah. Me and Hannah and Lauren and all our little local crew, whoever we were with. And we started to talk more about what was valuable in the community and um, how people were really able to mend and make do and um, make the most of things. And you know, there's always challenges and things are always political and there's never enough money or resources, but there's always a way. And, and if you can stick together and work together and value different opinions and agree to disagree, and then you can get somewhere. So um, the we started to build the story and then we found my granddad's old cine footage and we're like, that's really nice. And Hannah's like, we, we need to use this. And then... We, Hannah and, and Rachel, and one of the the filmers on the Thrawn project, watched the Chunky Nick films again, and they were like, this is amazing. We need to do something with this. And it kind of organically came together. So this is just, so, uh, there's just something I've got to get into at this point. In the Chunky Nick movies, you are the possessor of possibly the worst injury yeah, committed yeah, to film. Enough. That wasn't a nice injury. I broke my jaw with my, with my knee and on my chin on a tiny little windlip. Yeah. But you didn't just break your jaw. You sort of split your lip there. And that is, I mean, I nearly threw up when I saw <laughs> yeah, that. that. Pretty I mean, that is a gnarly injury. <laughs> yeah. Is that all fixed up and fine? Yeah, yeah, it's all fine. You've got a decent scar going. Got a scar down there. And yeah, they had to, 
I got some free plastic surgery. I never recommend plastic surgery to anybody. When somebody says to me that they want plastic surgery, I think, you, you really don't. I've had it. <laughs> you really don't. Um, but chunking it was a project that I set up with Josie Clyde, Josie McNamara. She used to be Josie Clyde. And Josie grew up in Aviemore as well. And she yeah. grew up in that same Cairngorm Ski Club vibe. And yeah. we really wanted to capture how what happens when people do things together and support each other. Yeah. And we felt the women who were snowboarding at the time they came together and supported each other and took it on and did it for themselves. They were going to learn from each other and, and it would progress. And it was really the start of the you know the women's side of snowboarding progressing yeah and i think it us along with you know runway films and mischief films that came out of that you know there there was a few projects in north america and chunky knit films did three films in europe and we you know kind of worked or knew each other and talked a lot and i think that was a really important time so now you know 20 years since we first released drop stitch to have a second generation of younger women coming along and going, this is amazing, this is awesome. Yeah. It's kind of, it's cool. And I think um, it was nice and thrown to, to um, throw a nod in that direction. And the, the women who were riding in it were amazing. So such, like for the time, great shots. I, I'd kind of forgotten. Yeah, and the thrown, the thrown thing really sort of sums, I mean, it really sort of sums up like a homegrown sort of culture that I think is quite unique. I mean, I'll I'll say the UK, but really it's Scotland, isn't it? Like, yeah. it's, do you know what I mean? Like, I th we're sort of riding on your coattails a bit with that because it is a, it's definitely a Scottish thing, I think. Yeah. I think it's quite particular. Oh, yeah. Or it's of a place and it's that place happens place. to be the um, Highlands. It definitely mixes like Highland culture that are, you know, the hi like Highlanders. And even, you know, I was born in Inverness and I still feel like I'm, not really a Highlander, you know. There's right. my friends who whose families have been there for hundreds, thousands of years. Yeah. And it's such a harsh climate up there, always has been harsh. Mm. To to be able to survive and thrive, you need to be thrown. You need to to be able to know what matters and when it matters. And there's that that um, strategy and creativity again, you know, the, the structure and the order and the chaos and the free flowingness and you need both. Yeah. And and you need to stick with it. You need to be able to put up with it, the ups and the downs. And um I think that's what Thrawn captures but positions it to to give a really important message, especially around the climate crisis. You know, we We've got yeah. big challenges to solve. So we're going to need all the ways of looking at the world and we're going to need to work together. We're going to need to make the best of what we've got in order to be able to get stuff done. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the, I guess, higher order message of Thrawn. And with all this, all the things that you've done and all the things you've achieved and all the sort of the positions that you've held and the sort of elements of snowboarding that you've sort of gone into that most people won't, what is it about snowboarding that keeps you wanting to go snowboarding? It's just so fun to do. It's fun to do, but it also helps me understand myself. So it helps me connect to myself. It's challenging. You can keep learning. You can interpret the landscape. You interact with the landscape. Sometimes you even feel immersed or at one with, with nature. 
but it's also a really social thing too. You can learn with it, um, your crew or your whoever you're riding with. You can help each other out. You can see the world through their eyes in a different way. Um, he can literally just sliding about puts a smile on your face if that's you know a simple level. Yeah. So I. I think that's why I ended up back in Aviemore. I never thought I'd end up living back there. Yeah, of all the places you've been, you could have settled in many places and to kind yeah. of, it seems, it's, I don't know, there's, there's, a, there's definitely a reason why you're back there. Yeah, so it, the community is amazing and the people are amazing, but the land is, you know, the mountains are just great. And you can, I can pop up the hill at lunchtime if I'm working, I can pop up for you know, an hour, a couple of hours, have a slide, come back to work. You've it's got children. Amazing. Have you got children? I've got a nine-year-old daughter. A nine-year-old. I yeah. have a nine-year-old daughter yeah. too. Um, what is it like taking her up the mountain? I love it. I love to, you know, see the world through her eyes. And she can ski and snowboard, and she picks and chooses, and that's great. Do you put any pressure on? I try not to. Um, <laughs> but you do. <laughs> no, no, like. <laughs> It's interesting, you know, I think skiing and who, so, um, somebody I, I interviewed in the last few days here at this um, event, who's been doing events for a very long time, said, um, apparently, I need to go and research this, that there is research from the neurology perspective that says sports where you go sideways change the way your brain works, the way your brain, um, he mentioned specifically the way your brain uptake uh, has an up uptake of dopamine um, I'm not sure if that's entirely the case but something about going sideways does affect the way you look at the world and skiing's great too but I think um, Cora says to me in her words snowboarding is just slightly more fun skiing is a fun thing to do yeah. but snowboarding is fun Right now what is that? that's interesting that is interesting mm -hmm. that is interesting um, I, yeah, I find that quite fascinating that standing sideways is a diff gives you a different thing. Because I, I used to ski and I definitely, you know, I'd hit jumps and stuff yeah. like that. It's definitely better on a snowboard. Yeah. But I don't know why it's better, but it definitely mm -hmm. feels better. And you can't really explain that to people. It just feels, it's got a feeling. Yeah, There's definitely a feeling. And, you know, I think... I love that feeling as much now. I came to snowboarding really, you know, quite late in life. I obviously tried it when I was reasonably young, but I didn't really learn to do it until my early 20s. Yeah, which is and crazy wish... now considering like Mia and Emily. Yeah, Rothney, you know, Emily Rothney's, you know, she's from Aviemore and grew up snowboarding there. I wish I'd maybe learned it earlier, but I'm just really glad that I learned it. So there you go. 45 minutes in the company of the lovely Leslie McKenna. Um, thanks, Leslie, for sparing a bit of time in what was a busy week, I think, for everyone. Even I managed to actually be quite busy among all the snowboarding and the socialising, of which there was a lot of both. Uh, I want to send a shout out to uh, Duncan Wright, Robin, uh, Patrick, Cool Bus Rob, uh, Tom Kings North, basically every joy from the Reason Mag, everyone that basically we went snowboarding with and had plenty of laughs with. Um, I do appreciate you having me along and 
basically welcoming me back to the mountains after what's been five, six, six years, I think. Um, it was great to be back. I think I described it as the warm embrace of the mountains, um, as Melanie said on her episode. There's something about uh, being in the mountains. They sort of feel like they hold you. And uh, that's a feeling I haven't had for a long time. And I was very happy to have that back. So, yeah, hopefully not certainly not going to leave it another five years. And it's great to be chatting with people out there, talking to them about the podcast. Lots of people had heard about it. People really stoked on the fact that we're sort of keeping this history going. And um, yeah, it was great. It was an all round kind of good for the soul trip, as well as seeing insane snowboarding at the highest level. And um, yeah, that sort of brings me on to one of the things I was wondering about is whether sort of these competition kids are just kind of automatons and able to throw it down, but without any personality. And I would say that snowboarding is definitely alive and well in amongst all this lot. Um, I'd say especially Valentino Giselli. I mean, he absolutely kicks it on the mountain, but he was also on stage with MOP on Saturday night. Uh, his dad's a loose cannon as well. I think Ed described him looser than a rental bowling shoe. Um, and I'd say that's the case. And there's lots of people there. And basically, yeah, the spirit of snowboarding in the next generation is definitely alive. Maybe it's more alive than ever due to the fact that all their coaches, like the US team's coach is Danny Cass. And if you don't know about Danny Cass, go and have a look at some of the old Grenade movies and you'll see that you know he used to run around firing fireworks at people and getting up to all sorts. So it's definitely a case of maybe it is the coaches are imparting that spirit into their younger riders and the younger riders are definitely on it. I've saw so many stylish things. I saw a guy, it might have been Rene, is his name, Rene Rajakangas, do this like tail slide to front sort of 270 melon off the big rail in, in the park. And man, it just looks so good. And I saw Mir Brooks do like a front side three lean over the little volcano, just popped one over and just dripping with style. So um, yeah. Snowboarding is in good, very good health. Um, I stuck a picture up on the Instagram. If you follow the Instagram, thank you, Snowboarding Podcast. I put a, put a clip up there, just happened to catch, um, I don't know who the rider is, just throwing down the biggest McTwist I think I've ever seen, just in practice. And um, yeah, man, snowboarding, is, it's still as insane. And you can kind of see the lineage through the early days to where it is now. And that is great to see. So yeah, Larks was interesting. After this interview, as I said, we went off to see, um, to hear Donna Carpenter, a friend of ours called Alba, and I can't remember who the other, the other girl was, um, talking about women in snowboarding. And that was kind of an interesting, an interesting thing. Um, I'd like to think that snowboarding is kind of leading the way in sort of gender parity and everything like that. And it was good to hear what Donna Carpenter, I mean, you know, I heard, listened to her episode on the bomb hole, which is a really good episode. I think she's quite a fascinating person. She's still very opinionated and still sounds like it working hard to sort of achieve lots of things in snowboarding. So it was great, great to actually sort of see her in person and hear her speak quite inspirational. 
Uh, what else went down? Uh, MOP, the old hip hop crew, played on a Saturday night, and that was hilarious. I was hanging out with Tom Kingsnorth um, for that, and that was oh man, I just laughed so much. I had a big smile on my face all week. I think um, it was truly a great experience. So yeah, that was Larks. Um, hopefully, going up to the Highlands with the t- Snowboard Asylum crew for one of well to see Leslie and Johnny Barr. And the whole up battle thing in March and maybe back out for the spring break in the Alps uh, at the end of April. But we shall see. I'll keep you posted. Uh, I just mentioned the Instagram. The Instagram is growing and growing all the time, getting loads of trying to find some really interesting content to throw up there. Like, for instance, yesterday I put up a thing about Dry Slope that Ski Sunday did a few years back with Tim Warwood and Jamie Nichols. And that's just a kind of a nice little celebration of our scene, really. It still is the UK dry slope. Still is the dry slope that I would say is the backbone of the culture in the UK. Um, There's not as many dry slopes as there used to be. I think we've covered that with a few people. But there are still scenes. And if you are in one of those scenes, big shout out to you. If you're still riding dry slope, then more power to you because it's dangerous it's dirty, it wrecks your equipment, but it is the most accessible way, the cheapest way of getting on a snowboard in the UK. So if you are still at it or you're thinking about getting into it, then definitely give it a go. Everyone, most people I know started out on dry slope and everyone has fond memories. You know, you know what they say, bones heal. I'm not going to do the rest of it in fear of getting cancelled. Um, pain is temporary, glorious forever. I think that's the end of that phrase. So yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do, if you are listening to this, wondering if you want to get into snowboarding, then do go out and find your local dry slope and see what they offer. It will be a good way of getting into it, and you'll probably meet some people who are hundred percent dedicated to um, getting you going and sharing the stoke with you. So there's that. Right, the music at the top of the podcast this week. Let's not forget that is by just having to look at my shazam here it is by qms it's by t love it's called qms it's out on ninja tune uh and it featured in leslie's movie um chunky knit no drop stitch made by chunky knit productions um i thought we'd mind that and i'll put that up us up on our uh, youtube channel thank you snowboarding on youtube uh if you go and have a look at that that'll be on top of the playlist uh, and that song's in it, and I just quite liked quite liked a bit of hip-hop for once. I don't think we've had a bunch of hip-hop so far on the series. So, yeah, that's that. And, yeah, it's a good movie, and we mentioned Leslie's gnarly injury, and that also is in there, but please do keep a sick bag or a bowl nearby because it will turn your stomach. It is, I would say possibly the gnarliest snowboard injury i've seen on camera and it is it is pretty horrific luckily leslie's face is completely fine and back to normal and as beautiful as ever uh what else is there um we did four episodes of the podcast out in larks uh leslie being one rob cool bus rob who we put out last week i hope you enjoyed that the intro and the outro were probably a little bit loose because I think it's fair to say that we'd had a couple of after-beer ridings with Tom Wilmot. But Tom Wilmot, who's the uh, New Zealand coach, he came and did an episode. And I've also got an episode 
with Mia Brooks's mum and dad. Uh, I thought it'd be really interesting to hear their story, and it is an interesting story. And um, we're going to see how Mia gets on at the X Games, and then maybe we're going to catch up with her as well and sort of put it all together into an episode in a couple of weeks. So keep it locked for that. Uh, Want to send a shout out, obviously, to the Snowboard Asylum. They hooked me up with some some kit before I went over there because my boots were knackered and I needed a new jacket and they were very generous. Uh, the Jones jacket, which performed amazingly well, a pair of Burton boots, which were some of the lightest, most comfortable boots I've ever used. Um, I busted out the old reissue brushy for the, for a few days. And I have to say, I was wondering about how it might be a bit rubbish, but actually it kind of dealt with all conditions really well. It's a really good board. So it's been on my wall for five years, and uh, I think there'll be a whole thing about the brushy. I think I'll do it on Instagram at some point. About what it meant and why I've got it now, because I'm not really a sort of hoarder or collector, but certainly uh, there was something about that board. And But I'll tell that story on Instagram, so follow us over there, and I'll post something up about that at some point. Um, yeah, just that was a great board. We had all sorts of weather over there. I mean, I've never been to a place where you literally have all the seasons in one run. But I've also never been to a place where the top to bottom runs are so long. And like it's like Mario Kart in loads of places. So yeah, Larks is a great resort. Um if you're looking to get away, if you're you know, if you wanna ride some power and you wanna ride some park, they've got they're pretty set up for everything. Um Try and avoid the weekends. Certainly the Saturday was really, really busy. Took quite a while to get out of the town, up the mountain. But um, the rest of the week, certainly midweek, the place is a ghost town. So, um, yeah, well worth checking out. Larks is a great place to go snowboarding if you are looking for somewhere to go. But obviously, there are many options open to you. Um, I think that's it. I think I've rambled on for, for quite a long time. Um, if you are listening, if you want to leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is you're listening to us, that would be much appreciated. As always, the more people we get listening to this, then uh, the more we can do. And obviously, that's a good thing because there's so many stories. Every time I speak to someone, someone tells me the story of someone else that we need to speak to. So my original list isn't being hit up very much because I keep finding other people and other people's stories to tell and it's fascinating and really interesting and I love it so um yeah please do please do leave us a review share it with your friends do all the social stuff you know the score that'd be great all right well I'm out of it till next week not sure who we're going to have next week uh, I've got a few in the bag um we'll see how Mia gets on at the X Games and that might dictate what happens but yeah, until then, keep it locked. Thank you, snowboarding. Peace.